This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch us with new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe and give us a rating. Now, this week, we're delving into the history of the defence of Northern England. We'll investigate the changing border between England and Scotland and the great fortifications and castles of the ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. And we'll also find out what roles they've had in more recent times. With us to help construct the story of Northern England's defences over the centuries is properties curator Mark Douglas. Hello, Mark. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. Uh, Last time we were with you, we spoke about Hadrian's Wall, and this time we're in the same region of England. Let's get into it, I suppose. Can you tell us how much the border between Scotland and England has changed over the centuries? I'm guessing you're going to say a lot. Uh, Yeah, yeah, quite a lot. It's disputed territory for a a lot of years, so basically it's an ebb and flow of influence back and forth across the River Tweed, I suppose, essentially. So it's almost like a tide, you know, just sort of, you know, Scottish influence at one one stage, English influence, and then it sort of flip-flops. Yeah, yeah, it's basically based on distractions. (laughs) When the Scots are distracted, the English invade Scotland, and when the uh, English are distracted, the Scots come south of the border into into England. So it's sort of a a game of sort of um, one-upmanship and cunning and, and who's, who can do the first thing first, you know? Yeah, almost cat and mouse, um, yeah, seizing think, territory yeah. and then waiting for the counter-attack, etc, etc. So how far back are we going then in the centuries to when this argument started? Somebody, so, um, myself included, would, would like to go back as far as the Roman period to think about the borders, but I think really we need to start off just after the Romans left Britain in the early 5th century and think about sort of how the notion of England and the notion of Scotland sort of came into being around that time and how it sort of progressed through right way through to the Union of the Crowns in, uh, in 1603. So after the Romans did leave Britain, around AD 400, I think it was, wasn't it? Um, who? 410. Who fought over this sort of northern area next? Well, the Germanic invaders that came across into England laying empty by the removal of the the legionary forces basically split Great Britain up into a series of separate kingdoms. The one we basically think about here is Northumbria. At that time, Northumbria was probably the most powerful kingdom out of the, uh, the several in England. And it was absolutely quite huge. And it stretched from the Humber in the south and up at some point as far as Stirling, basically north of Edinburgh. So the, the Northumbrian kings controlled huge swathes of territory, both what we'd think now is north of the border and south of the border. That's a lot of area to be arguing about, isn't it? It's not how we look at it today. No, no, of course not. And, you know, we assume that there will have been a native population in the area, so there would be obviously some resistance. Mm. But you know, these, uh, the, this does come to fall later on, of course, when the again a distraction happens. We get the Vikings invasions and that sort of thing. And of course, once somebody's trouble is also somebody else's um, opportunity. You've described quite a vast area there. So if people have got their maps out, they should be able to get a sense of how much territory we're talking about here. Was there a key battleground in this particular area that was always being fought over, like a like a no man's land? Not so much as that really, but it's just that 
once these kingdoms were waxing and waning, so basically across the uh, the 9th and 10th century, Northumbria's influence wanes somewhat. Other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms come to the fore, and of course we end up with Wessex after the Viking invasion and uh, basically following the period of peace, following the reign of Arthur the Great, we get a, a resurgence of Wessex, the kingdom of Wessex, moving north, and that's when we get the sort of disputed territory in the, in the north of England and across the border into Scotland. So how far does Wessex go up then in well, Anglo-Saxon times? Because obviously if we think of Wessex today, we think of sort of Dorset and a bit of Wiltshire and a bit of Devon, that sort of area, don't we? Yeah, I mean, that's effectively it, actually, to a certain extent. And then there's two kingdoms, the Kingdom of Wessex and the Kingdom of Mercia, and they both come together under the influence of Alfred the Great. And it's once those, those two kingdoms come joined together, then we start moving and pushing back the boundaries of the, of the Kingdom of Wessex, which eventually results in the Kingdom of England. One of the major events is with King Athelstan, who was the uh, grandson of Alfred the Great, who uh, basically pushed further north and actually into Scotland itself. This was followed by a resistance from north of the border. There was a coalition between Constantine, the King of the Scots, Owen, who was the King of Strathclyde, and Olaf Griffithson, it was the King of Viking Dublin, and they basically all got together and invaded England, and they were met in battle by Athelstan at the famous battle, decisive battle of Brunanburg, which nobody knows actually where it is, but there's some contenders, but certainly in northern England. And it was after this that basically that, that was the whole of the country came under the rule of Wessex, and we can sort of start talking about a unified England at that point. Right, and what year was that? Uh, the Battle of Brunanburg was around 937. So... Uh, in 937, can you just describe the map for us then? Wessex and Mercia are sort of mostly England, is that right? Yep, and basically the Kingdom of Northumbria, which was then, becomes part of the wider English kingdom, is still sort of disputed in, in the sense that you know the, the people of Northumbria still feel themselves as being an independent nation. But it wasn't until King Edmund, who comes after Athelstan, basically unites the whole of England together itself to sort of the very end of the 9th century. And meanwhile, what's going on, what we would term north of the border today, but obviously at this point it's sort of a bit more murky. (laughs) Um, Whilst the English are sort of coalescing and starting to find an identity, what's going on north of the border? Well, we have basically everything that's going on in Macbeth. So there's there's a big power struggle for domination in Scotland. Scotland's always been slightly divided by the Lowlands and the Highlands, of course, and a lot of the clan chieftainships of that. But eventually they did come together and there was, again, another one of these instances where there's a distraction somewhere and somebody takes advantage of it. So the next major thing that takes place is the Battle of Carham on the Tweed. And this takes place in 1018, a distinctive date because it's the date we have Ethelred the Unready on the, on the throne. And he's, his reign was particularly troublesome and he was particularly troubled with Viking incursions, Viking raids on the, on, the, on the East Coast. So the Scots took full advantage of this and basically beat the English in battle at Carham and that is when the border was then firmly fixed on the River Tweed. Whereabouts are we talking on the map, if you can tell us? Are we looking on the east coast here? Sort yeah, of? On, the, on the eastern side of the country. The Tweed runs almost to the west of the country, so you know, we're talking from the east coast, halfway across the country, and over to a more of a disputed area in Cumbria. Cumbria was a back-and-forth kind of situation, which that happens, of course, in the Norman period, which we'll come on to in a second. Of course. Largely speaking, this battle was taking place on the east coast, 
Northumberland, effectively. Yeah, towards the east coast of Northumberland, yeah. Whereabouts would be a, a modern location? Uh, Coldstream, the border town of Coldstream. It's not far from Coldstream itself, a bit further north of Wooler, 15, 20 miles inland. And then, of course, as you've intimated, uh, next key marker in the story of England's developing is the Norman invasion in 1066, the date that every school person knows. Uh, that obviously takes place in southern England, though. So what problems did William the Conqueror come across when he eventually moved north? Well, of course, William is another one who takes advantage of a disputed and a rather unsmooth transition for kingship from the Earl of Wessex to Harold II. So the English nation at the time was not completely joined up in the way they thought about stuff. So William takes advantage of that because he wins the Battle of Hastings, he can start moving up through England, but he does encounter a vast amount of resistance, particularly in the north of England. Um, the Northumbrians themselves um, were independent-minded people. They hadn't fully supported, I don't think, the, the earls of, of, of the, the local region hadn't fully supported the succession of um, Harold. And they were resistant to Norman rule. And because of their close contacts to across the North Sea, in Denmark and Sweden and Norway, there was a potential threat, so it had to be dealt with. And that's what William did, rather brutally, and basically put down any risings and put any, and down any thoughts that things were going to change any time soon. But this did allow the threat of north across the border in Scotland to remain, and you had to think of a solution for that one too. Are you saying that William had to deal with invasions still from Viking Scandinavia? Yeah, there were threats. I mean, obviously there'd been the invasion intensely sick itself with the, the Battle of um, Stamford Bridge, but there was also threatened invasion fleets all the time on the horizon, metaphorically on the horizon, one or two unsuccessful, one or two that didn't even, didn't even leave, leave um, Scandinavia. But it, it was always a problem, always a threat. It was There was alliances to be made against the Norman rule. And of course, England was such a wealthy and prosperous country that um, everyone was a part of it, you know. As William gets older, he then has his heirs. How did they maintain their power in the region? Well, the first thing you need to think about is that, that how William dealt with this. William was a, a man of action and a man who didn't, who didn't sort of beat about the bush. He basically invaded Scotland in 1072 and he received homage from the King of Scots, Malcolm III. And this was basically, you know, how you, how you ruled them days. You're a king, you're a client king, you did homage, feudal homage, and things were peaceful for a while. But on top of that, the Normans then had to make, to back up that one piece with a show of strength, and what they did was they built castles. This is where the, the Normans do differ slightly from what, be, what went before. There was no real permanent defences on, on the northern frontier after the Romans had left, but there was certainly with the Normans, with the building of Newcastle in Newcastle in 1080. There was a, a line of castles stretched across the border, all at this point earth and, and timber, Morton Burley type or ringwork type castles. But the first two castles that we're thinking about at this particular period are Newcastle and Carlisle. Strangely enough, both built on either end of Hadrian's Wall, but I think that was, a, that was a real consideration. But both these castles were essentially first constructed in, in Earth. But then what we needed then was a, a reliable and more permanent structure, and um, Storm came into this. You've discussed there, Mark, the development of castles, Morton Bailey, earthwork and timber structures, which eventually gave way to some more permanent stone structures later on. Once William has passed away, what happens then? Presumably his heirs come to the fore and they also make some fortifications in, in the north, do they? 
Yeah, the achievements of, of William were built upon by his heirs. Other than the castle at Norham, which is, there's a very, very famous uh, castle at Norham, which is, again, on the Tweed, that part of the border was too important to leave to anybody that could be accused of or even thought of as might be slightly treacherous. So it was left to the church, and the, that part of Norhamshire, as they call it, which is North Northumberland, came under the auspices of the Bishop of Durham. So the Bishop of Durham was also instrumental in the defence of the North. But certainly the castles that we think about as the main ones, as Carlisle, for example, Newcastle and Berwick, were all castles, and they were built in stone by the future heirs or the, or the, you know, the, the successors of William the Conqueror. Could you give us a few names? The major stronghold is Carlisle. Um, this was begun by Henry I in 1122. He started construction of the Great Keep there. That was captured by an invasion force of David I of Scotland before the construction was complete, and it was David who finished the keep. And then also David I of Scotland went on to, uh, to recapture much of northern England, down as far as um, into southern Northumberland and to northern Cumbria. But uh, he was thwarted his ambitions by stretching himself a little bit too far, and he gets himself down into North Yorkshire, where he was defeated by the armies of King Stephen at uh, the Battle of the Standard north of North Allerton in North Yorkshire. So this is far these, these, these people penetrating down into the country. And then and the second took back all the territory lost by treaty and then pushed the border back north to where it lies today. Right, that's really interesting. So if it weren't for Stephen, Stephen I and the only Stephen that we've had as king, I believe, the one, yeah. then the Scots might still be occupying Yorkshire. Yeah, I mean, it, this is the weird thing about it. I mean, it's, it's such a fluid thing. It seems to me that it sort of bounces backwards and forwards across you know, into different territories, but always seem to come back to lie on that same kind of a political fault line across the Tweed to the Solway Firth. It's, it's, there's some kind of magnetic attraction for that particular spot. You're probably right, and the fact that being a river, it's a natural geographical dividing line, isn't it? Well, exactly, that's right, and it's quite a mighty river also. You know, it's, it's, a big, it's, a, it's a big feature in the landscape, yeah. So these castles, having been established by the Norman kings, were overrun, as we've just described, by David of Scotland. Did they have a role to play in the following centuries as well? I gather there was a period called the Scottish Wars of Independence, which was brought on by this power vacuum in Scotland. Can you tell us a bit about that? It all starts with two characters. One is Alexander III of Scotland, and the other character is um, King Edward I, Edward Longshanks of Braveheart fame, on the other side. Edward himself was never one to miss an opportunity. And again, it all boils down to the same idea. Once there's something happening, once there's a vacuum, once there's a problem with the country, you make your opposition's problems your advantage. It all came about basically because the Scottish king died without an heir apparent, which was uh, Alexander III died, and absolutely no heir apparent other than a three-year-old granddaughter who lived in Norway, who was known as um, Margaret the Maid of Norway. Edwin himself was all for it because Edward I thought, here's an opportunity, I'll marry my son Edward of Carnarvon, the future Edward, Edward II, to the Maid of Norway, then I get even more influence over Scotland because my son becomes the King of Scotland. And they sent for the Maid of Norway to come across to Scotland to be inaugurated as the new Scottish Queen. Unfortunately for her, and unfortunately for Scotland, she was unstopped in uh, in the Orkney Islands, which was then at that time with an outlier of Norway, and she died, unfortunately, throwing the whole thing up in the air. So then, again, not to miss an opportunity, Edward was then asked to arbitrate between several claimants to the throne, and he picked on a chap called John Balliol. And this meeting took place in the, in the Great Hall of Berwick Castle. There's Edward's sticky hands all over Scottish politics. And it's not long before Edward and um, John Balliol basically fall out. And then John Balliol makes a, an, an alliance with the French, 
which becomes known as the old the old alliance. Basically, Edward thinks very little of this and basically invades Scotland. It takes him a lesson. And what year is this? Is this the 1300s? This is the very beginning of the 1300s, yeah. yeah. Right. And people obviously might remember then the Battle of Bannockburn from the film Bravehearts, which was uh, where the Scots defeated the English in 1314. Mm-hmm. Uh, what effect did that victory have on the border and on fortifications in northern England? Edward I himself was fairly successful in his domination of the North and particularly Scotland and won a great many victories and was, of course, known as the Hammer of the Scots. His son, on the other hand, Edward II, didn't have his, the same martial qualities and things started to go a bit awry for him. Of course, we have the uprising in Scotland and, of course, we've got various charismatic leaders, including Robert the Bruce. And it was that, as you rightly say, at the Battle of Bannockburn, 1314, where the English forces defeated and uh, Edward was sent back across the border to think again, as they say in the, the, Scottish, uh, the Scottish National Anthem. This did have an effect on the, the fortification of the North. The North, up to that point, had been fairly peaceful in a sense. It was, you know, invading armies moving backwards and forwards. Now it, it was becoming much more of a dangerous place to be. And so what you find in the North England now, what you find in Northumbria particularly, is that now we get a lot of domestic buildings fortified. So not only are these huge castles, castles of Walkworth, Dunstanburg, Prudhoe, Norham, all those massive, you know, great piles that are sat there glowering north towards the Scots. We always have smaller places like Eatel, Edlingham and Aden Castle were all effectively, although known as castles, are effectively just domestic manor houses, we call, what we now call a fortified manor house. The architecture is changing at that point then. It's a complicated issue because you gained a license to crenellate, which means you've got a license to fortify your house. You got that from the king. It was also a thing at the time that was uh, it was happening all over the country and it was also a fashionable thing. You know, you make your house look defensible even though it's not. But yeah, in Northumberland there was a need for a same defence. You know, the, the, so, these, so these things were not only a cosmetic thing, they were taking place because there was raiding across that border all the time. Even to the point where religious buildings Lindisfarne, Lindisfarne Priory, for example. Yes, um, I was about, just about to ask you about that one. That's on Holy, Light, Holy Island, which is on the east coast in Northumberland. And that had been subject to a Viking raid, I understand, in 793. And there was also some defensive fortifications put there. You wouldn't expect it to have a defensive elements there where monks are generally being very pious and quiet. No, but what you'll find is you're entirely right. 793 was a Viking invasion, uh, the Viking raid, I should say, and Lindisfarne was raided quite a few, a number of times across that period. The religious institutions, similarly to the they were in the 8th century, were isolated, kind of defenceless, um, and as you say, manned by peaceful monks, and they were fair game. So I don't think there's a single abbey or priory in the north of England that didn't suffer at some point from the advances of the Scottish force across the border. Lindisfarne is a particular case in point because it sits out on this island and this island was also a staging point for supplies coming up from the south of England because the, um, the use of the navy was quite important in terms of movements across the border. So basically, unlike other priories or abbeys, Lindisfarne gets arrow loops and um, a barbican gate and a drawbridge and a portcullis. So mm. it's rather well defended. As we move into the Tudor period, we need to mention the Battle of Flodden Field, where a Scottish king was killed. That was a matter for Henry VIII. But for Henry VII, how did he deal with rulers beyond his northern border? 
Henry VII was, in many ways, quite a, a shrewd and strategic man. I mean, we do know he obviously he fought against uh, Richard III at the, the Battle of Bosworth Field, but he was more open to quiet diplomacy, and he kept the Scottish kings appeased and under treaties, and things kept quite quiet. Until we get the young James IV, as part of diplomacy, Henry would like to arrange a marriage between uh, his daughter Margaret and James IV, which obviously th- these alliances work really well. It detracts from the alliance between Scotland and, uh, and, and France. But nothing really came of it. Being a young chap, he was more interested in sort of showing his prowess and started basically raiding across the borders in 1496. It was one of those situations where there was an uprising in Cornwall. Henry was um, distracted by this going on, and James promptly uh, had a go. James then came across again in 1497, which is quite an interesting one. He laid siege to the great castle of Norham, and in this siege, James was quite taken with armaments and artillery, and James brought down the great bombard, a type of cannon of Mons Meg, which is on display now in Edinburgh Castle, which was used against the walls of Norham Castle, but uh, the siege was unsuccessful. And the Battle of Flodden Field, tell us what happened there. Flodden Field comes along after the, the death of Henry VII, so we got, we're now in the reign of Henry VIII. Henry's away in France, you know, chivalric stuff in France, while at home, again, there's an opportunity. The Scots see the English king distracted by goings-on in France, and James raids across the border in 1513. Takes Norham this time, no problem at all. He takes Eatsall, which is a smaller castle down the road from there, but a few other border strongholds. The Earl of Surrey is sent north by the Queen and Catherine of Aragon, and he meets the Scottish king at, at Flodden Field in Northumberland um, on the 9th of September, 1513. And it was a complete disaster, for the, for, uh, as far as the Scots were concerned. James IV himself was killed, as long as with many of his, uh, his, his important supporters. And mostly the Scottish artillery was captured as well, and that was taken to Eatle, locked up in Eatle Castle before being transported to Berwick. And the postscript of this is when Henry arrives back from France, he's, look at this, I've, 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 I've had, a fan, had a fantastic time campaigning in northern France, um, I captured a couple of small towns. Catherine of Aragon was able to turn out to him and say, actually, I killed a Scottish king. You know, right. So uh, he didn't go down really too well with, with Henry in terms of his pride, as you know, you imagine. In the mid-16th century, we have the English church splitting from Rome and, and it was under threat from France and the Holy Roman Empire for a time. How did this issue affect the Scottish border region? The old alliance still held true because Margaret, the sister of, of Henry, did actually marry a uh, Scottish king. It didn't lead to any massively lasting alliance and uh, the Scots still looked at old friends across the Channel. There was this, this kind of backlash against the break from Rome and also the treatment of um, Captain of Aragon and this, this sort of a coalition between France and Spain to see a reversal in the, uh, in the Reformation. At the same time, of course, in 1537, James V, the successor of James IV of Scotland, also sort of strengthened the alliance with the French by marrying uh, Madeleine de Valois, who was a member of the French royal family. So the, this, the alarm bells were ringing all around England at this time. Henry put the whole country under some kind of war footing, and he was expecting an invasion at any time, absolutely any time. And this had a, a massive effect on the architecture, defensive architecture of the country, particularly in the south and the, the east of the country, but certainly along the Scottish border and on the other disputed areas. I understand he built some fortifications along the Scottish border area during his reign. Is that right? 
That's right. What we see is um, a new way of building and a new method of building which defends against artillery. Henry was extremely interested in this kind of thing. And at Berwick, he builds what we call now call Lord's Mount, which is built on the northeast corner of Berwick, not far from the sea, on the corner of the, of the town walls, almost like a very, very squat, round fortification bristling with guns with extremely thick walls intended to withstand cannon fire. A completely different thing from the tall walls of keeps, medieval keeps. Everything's very low at the ground, very flat, very thick. Was that one of the only ones in the north that he built, or were there other ones? The, one of the most effective displays of this kind of thing was um, done at Carlisle, where Henry contracted the expertise of a chap called Stefan van Haschenperg. Von Haschenperg was a master in uh, defensive architecture. He started work at Carlisle. He dropped the height of the keep by one story, installing a whole array of guns on the top of Carlisle Castle Keep. He strengthened the walls, put them much, much thicker at one side, built um, a rampart on the inside of the wall, which is a thick earthen defence. So the facing of the wall was then backed with a, a big earthen bank, which on top of which again were more cannons. And he also constructed this thing called the Half Moon Battery, which is a double-decker battery that uh, was just in front of the inner gatehouse at, uh, at Carlisle, which defended a ditch so that people couldn't get from the outer gatehouse through the inner gatehouse. And the interesting thing about this thing is that uh, there's a nice circularity to it that um, the Lord Dacre, who was the, uh, who was the Lord of the March at the time, he was the man in charge of Carlisle, also owned the uh, dissolved monastery of Lanacost. And he brought the stone from Lanacost Priory down to Carlisle to build the Half Moon Battery. Lanacost itself was built not exclusively, but quite a lot of stone taken from Hadrian's Wall. So there's a direct connection between Hadrian's Wall, Lanacost Priory, and the Half Moon Battery in Carlisle, in Carlisle Castle. These things are forever linked together. Fascinating. Now, yeah, once yeah. they stop being used by one type of people in history, they're then borrowed by the future generations. Did new fortifications continue to be built after Henry's death in 1547? Quite rightly, the most famous and should be across all of Europe is the works that took place at Berwick. If you go to Berwick today, you'll see that the town is basically mostly surrounded by these huge, huge earthworks, earthwork ramparts and stone-faced ramparts and these kind of bastion forts where they've, there's got little outliers where the guns don't have to shoot at right angles to the wall, they can shoot along the length of the wall. It's all new innovations that were brought over from Italy. So Berwick was initiated by Mary Tudor. And also, Edward VI, under Edward VI, there was a, a star fort starting to be built at Carlisle, which is a very angular square with angular pointy corners type of fort that was starting to be built there. But that was abandoned in the reign of Mary with the preference to build a whole series of bastioned walls around the whole of Berwick, which then was continued again under the reign of Elizabeth I. These things were never used. They were never, ever threatened. But it's worth having them. It's a deterrent, yeah. In 1603, Queen Elizabeth I died, of course, childless, and the crown was passed to James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England. Was this period quite a peaceful one in terms <coughs> of the old alliance and um, a new one for England and Scotland? This is one of the great things that came out of that sort of union of the crowns. There was a, a period of relative calm and relative peace. I mean, you've got to think that being part of the union, as, he, as, they, as they said it is, is a great thing. And it was um, it was seen as such by a, a lot of people in Scotland that, you know, let's be, something, let's be part of something bigger. 
There was the Border Reavers, of course. The Border Reavers were individuals or families of individuals who lived either side of the Scottish borders, who basically were raiders, they caused trouble, they were you know, a constant thorn in the side of authorities, but they weren't warring factions of two different nations across the border. So the whole thing was, the Scottish border was always a kind of a volatile place to be, but at this point it wasn't between countries, it was the volatility. So despite the union, officially, there were these outliers, these sort of outlaws, yeah, exactly, vigilantes, exactly. trying to do their own thing. But it wasn't nationalistic. They weren't, they weren't fighting for the, their countries, they were fighting for their own profits. Because right. Big, you know, just a bunch of gangsters, basically. So what role did Carlisle Castle, which is one of the key fortifications in the north of England, play during this period of the new union? Carlisle was a very interesting place. Now, now the strength about Carlisle is that Carlisle Castle is always, often referred to as the most besieged castle in the country, and it actually is, isn't as such. It's, it's more to do with the fact that Carlisle is probably the most besieged city in the country, because, again, Carlisle had a whole circuit of city walls that went round it. But yeah, Carlisle played a, a big part. There's two routes down through from Scotland into northern England. One is down through Carlisle, and one is down through Newcastle. And it seemed for some reason, whatever, the Scots generally took the route through Carlisle. Hence the huge castle there. So things were sort of going pretty nicely till sort of 1715 with the first Jacobite rising, which was basically trying to force the hand of the British government to reinstate the Stuart family on the throne after James II had been sent to exile after the Glorious Revolution in the later part of the 17th century. And there was, you know, a certain amount of trouble basically spurned the British government into doing some works at Carlisle and also at Berwick at the same time, sort of strengthened the walls, re-strengthened the walls. They even went as far as to build a permanent barracks. One of the first barracks ever built in the country was, was built in, in Berwick. And at Carlisle, there was a barracks, there was a, there was a, a garrison there as well at the same time. Where Carlisle came into its own was with the second Jacobite rising in 1745, the supporters of Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, they basically came down to Carlisle and they captured Carlisle itself. After laying besieged, besieged to, to the castle for three days, it was added over to them and they took up residence before moving on to Derby. So basically, the Jacobite army got as far as Derby. So again, this is, you can see how all these things penetrated down to the country. Of course, by this time, the supply lines were woefully inadequate and they had to make their way back. And the follow-on from that was basically the, the, the defeat of Culloden, and uh, it was all over. And they were chased back into Scotland. The last, one of the last engagements, strangely enough, was at, or the last battle fought on English soil was in 1745 at a place called Clifton. Clifton Moor was just south of Penrith, not far from Carlisle. And it was after that, that um, in 1546, the Battle of Culloden, and then that was it for the, the Stuarts. Presumably then we move into a period where England and Scotland are living quite harmoniously and peacefully. Yeah, obviously nobody knows that things all at the time they don't know it's all over. There was a, a still a tension and a, and a thought this could all kick off again. The fortifications were under constant modification. And one of the things that was quite strange was that, um, or quite timely, was, a, was a, the construction of the military way by the British government over the Pennines basic on the line of Hadrian's Wall again. But this this road was um, constructed out of Hadrian's Wall, effectively, the stone, and also sometimes on top of Hadrian's Wall. So if you drive across the military way now, across between Newcastle and Carlisle, at some point you will be driving on top of where the wall was. So it all, again, it's a, there's a, a great circularity to it, that these defensive positions, these splits and lines across the country, are never changed really to a, to a certain extent, you know. 
Were there any other changes made to northern English castles and other fortifications in the north after the 1700s? Yeah, the um, two of the things come about, which is one, one quite a strange one. There's Carlisle Castle continues in this, and it's, it's the threat, again, strangely, from France. And it's not the threat of actually, inv- actually invasion or, or, or people from France coming across here with any bad intent. It's the idea of invasion of ideas from France. So following the um, French Revolution, the radical new thinking across the country and uh, across the continent, and people striving for new freedoms, the British government certainly looked towards the northern manufacturing towns as a place of ferment where these things might have actually kicked off. And Carlisle was one of the places that was garrisoned against the possibility of a, a revolution within England, strangely enough. That's where the use became, then, of these, these fortifications become more of a, a domestic thing. What happens then to these fortifications in northern England as we move into wars which are then fought in Europe? And I'm talking about the First and Second World Wars. Again, it's, it's surprising we always talk about the same two castles, but certainly the same fortifications is Carlisle and Berwick. And both big garrison centres. Carlisle is the centre for the military, and over in over in Berwick, it's the it's the barracks, it's Ravensdown Barracks, which becomes the the centre for the, the military establishments. Both these places became recruiting centres for the First World War, and training centres for the First World War, and also military regiment headquarters. So the King's Own Board regiments and uh, the King's Own Scottish Borders. So mustering points for troops, effectively. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. As we move into World War Two, how do these castles change purpose? There's a really great example, if you think of a northern castle, which is Tynemouth. So from Henry VIII right with to the 18th century, or late 18th century, early 19th century, the focus of attention was based around keeping the French in check and watching what they're up to, you know. As time moves through, the French domination after, after the Napoleonic Wars, their sort of domination of Europe wanes to some extent, or to a lot of extent, and the new power is Germany. And then you notice that if you look at the fortification, they move from the south coast, to a certain extent, to a line of fortifications up the east coast. And one of these, which was started in 1906, was at Tynemouth Castle. So Tynemouth is a, is a medieval priory with a castle in front of it, on the approach from the, from the landward side and on the, on the, there's a headland behind the, the priory and on this headland there was a huge gun battery placed with two 6 inch guns and one 9.2 inch gun a 9.2 inch gun is an absolutely enormous thing you know, you know could blow anything up and this was first built just before the First World War in anticipation of the threat from, from Germany so what was manned didn't see action was manned through the, through the First World War and then, then was re-established in the Second World War, again, with the barracks and barrack buildings on the site. And the same thing happens up in Berwick as well. There's a whole line of defences along the ramparts. And did these locations like Tynemouth and Berwick see action at all? No, strangely enough, no. Tynemouth itself had um, guns looking out across the sea. Out east had guns that looked across the, the mouth of the tide to protect the Tyne. These things were never used in anger. Further south on the north northeast coast, down into Yorkshire, Gunboats were fired upon, but um, up in the north, it was again. It was a de- uh, there were major, major gun emplacements, more of a threat and a deterrent. After the World Wars, what happened to the castles then? Did they stop being needed as defensive sites? Did they completely change purpose in peacetime? Yeah, what we have is the legacy we have today. Some castles were were adapted for domestic purposes. You know, Anna Castle is a famous example. Some were just left to go to ruins. Yes, and I think today we recognise these sites as part of our history, part of the landscape, and 
as places to visit and explore. But perhaps we also forget why they were built and how much violence they might have seen. What do you want visitors to take away having visited these northern fortifications and castles? The perennial problem is that you are talking about places that were meant to kill people or defend people from being killed, one or the other. There's different ways of looking at different buildings and the way they're looking at them in a political sense, say, for example, at Norham Castle, where it was used as a kind of a linchpin of the political situation. And it wasn't there to sort of basically go out and subdue people. It was there just to maintain the peace, to maintain the established order, and also to resist any incursions coming south. So there's a way to look at that building and the way it's built, the way it's formed, to think the particular job it had to do. In essence, I think what we... Well, I'd like people to take away from this is that we think that the English heritage themselves, we were sort of, well, listed in the north of England, predominantly abbeys, the, the Hadrian's Wall, and a bunch of castles in Northumberland, Durham, North Yorkshire and Cumbria. And I think what I'd like people to take away is the idea that a close inspection and a, and a close thinking about where these things are sited and what they may mean would be to show you the diversity and, and kind of the idea that not all castles are alike. They've all got something to say about themselves, about the people who occupied them and built people who built them. And it's an illuminating subject. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're on the trail of groundbreaking research into one of England's most enigmatic monuments. We are in Westwoods, just southwest of Marlborough in Wiltshire, and scattered around us here are some of the sarsen stones that we think are the same type that we use to build Stonehenge. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>